if, uh, if you look back throughout history, just in our nation, you'll find <clears throat> that our culture has been in a constant state of flux, uh, a change right from its inception uh, up through today. It's been constantly changing. What, what we find to be humorous, what we find to be appalling, what is considered taboo, what is considered sacred, what we think is cool, what we think is uncool, our language, how we use it, all of that changes in culture constantly. In fact, when I was at seminary in a class, advanced hermeneutics, hermeneutics is where they teach you how to interpret the Bible, the study of interpretation of the Bible. Uh, they were trying to make the point to us, the students, at how careful we need to be and thorough and diligent when we study the Bible in its original languages because these are ancient languages from ancient cultures from other parts of the world that we really don't understand. And to make their point, they took an actual comic strip from America in the 1800s, an actual comic strip that was, that was printed in the newspaper at that time, and they showed it to us and had us read it. And it was supposed to be funny. And nobody got the humor in the class. And it had nothing to do with the dates or times and places. It had to do with the fact that our language and what we consider to be humorous has changed so much in the last 100, 150 years in our country, in our own culture, that we didn't understand the comic strip at all. And they said, now, now think about that in cultures hundreds and thousands of years ago from ancient languages and places all over the world. You see how different things are, how things change. And yet, according to Scripture, God never changes. That in and of itself would be a great sermon someday because it is such a profound and an immense thing to think about. The fact that God is immutable. He never changes, and that's affirmed all throughout both the Old and New Testaments. He says in Malachi 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so we, the church, have been commissioned to spread an unchanging message about an unchanging God based on His unchanging Word to a constantly changing culture. And that's quite a challenge. In fact, at times it's like trying to hit a moving target for all of the shifting that happens in people's perceptions and preferences and convictions. And some of you folks that are here that are older than me, you've got stories to tell about how society and culture has changed just in your lifetime. I've seen it. Those changes include religious beliefs. Even the deepest held convictions based on the Word of God that were once deemed as absolutes by much of the population. Convictions about life and marriage and religion and morality and so on that were at one time in our culture considered to be foundational truths are now changing for many people. And those changes are not only happening faster than ever because of technology and media and modern education, but from the late 20th century on, there has been an overall shift in our culture in worldview toward postmodern thinking, which rejects absolutes and philosophical and, and religious thought in favor of what is called relativism. So there's this rapid and wholesale dismissal of absolute truth happening in our culture today in favor of what we call relativistic thought, which says that every individual viewpoint on any given subject, regardless of what it is, is just as valid as any other viewpoint on that subject. And so 
there's no longer a fixed point of reference from which we derive our beliefs as a society on the whole. There's no longer a home base, a, a common foundation that our morality and convictions are built upon. The great theologian Samuel Escobar describes postmodern thought as the ascendance of feeling and the revolt against reason. Jeffrey Arthurs writes, Today we preach to a mind convinced that truth is socially constructed based on only one individual perspective. Okay, so this move in our society toward a postmodern ethos, a, a postmodern perspective, has become a, a profound transference of thought in Western culture overall. It's a massive shift in worldview for the greater part of our society over about the past 50 years or so. Uh, postmodernism started way back before that, but really when it began to take hold, which in the beginning was largely relegated to the secular elements of our church, but has unfortunately now taken root in Christian thinking within the American church as well, even in some of the most conservative evangelical arms of the church. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I told you about some very prominent pastors around our country, even here in Greenville, some of them from very conservative denominations who have unapologetically rejected Scripture as the basis for their theology concerning some of the most sacred institutions created by God, including the calling and ordaining of elders and pastors in the Church of Jesus Christ. One of them was quoted in an interview with the Greenville News saying that their beliefs on some of these issues are culturally driven, he said, not biblically driven. Just a few days ago, Kent Dobson, a pastor of Mars Hill Bible Church, a 10,000 member church in Grand Rapids, explained that he was going to step down from his position at the church as a teaching pastor so that he could explore the edges of religion and faith, was his quote. And I listened to most of his message. He's a well-known pastor, which was, uh, to be honest, at times almost incoherent as he mumbled around and he rejected biblical absolutes, uh, orthodox Christian teaching, while rambling about his courageous journey that he was about to embark on into the great unknown. At one point, he said, and I'm quoting, I have always been and am still drawn to the very edges of religion and faith and God. I've said a few times that I don't even know if we know what we mean by God anymore. That, that's the edges of faith, he said. That's the thing that pulls me. I'm not really drawn to the center. I'm not drawn to the orthodox or the mainstream or the status quo. I'm always wandering out to the edge and beyond. And he's now even questioning the validity of the gospel message as he went on. He went on to explain that his beliefs have changed. And that he considers himself to be very progressive, he called it, in his convictions and doctrine, which again we're seeing, I think, more and more today. And so, just as our culture strays further away from biblically-based Christian orthodoxy, some elements of the church are following suit. And so, I think given what is really a prevalent shift in conviction within now even our own ranks as the church, I think that it is more important than ever for professing believers to ask ourselves, what is guiding us today? And if we're to benefit at all from asking that question, then we're going to have to be ruthlessly honest with ourselves in the answering of it. What are we allowing to truly guide us, our decisions, our preferences, our convictions, our choices, more than anything else? Is it God's unchanging truth or our ever-changing culture? Which of these is our primary guide for what we believe and how we live? 
In other words, what is the truth that guides us? And of course, it's easy for many of us, I think, to say, without even a lot of conviction or reflection, that we're guided by God's Word and God's voice because we're religious people. And so we know that that is what we're supposed to say. But I think it is really important for us to actually and thoughtfully consider that question in light of the current climate in our culture and specifically within the context of the church which again is rapidly moving away from Christian orthodoxy in some circles and, and toward a much more liberal, postmodern, relativistic approach certainly to the Bible and ultimately into whatever it is that we actually believe to be true. And so we need to consider that question because the answer to that question, what is guiding us today, is for each person fundamentally found in what we believe at our core to actually be true. So there's an imperative. If we are to be able to stand firm, as Paul urged the church in Corinth to do, which was a culture, by the way, much like ours. In many ways, Corinth was a city with a lot of wealth, a lot of mixed cultures, and a lot of idolatry. Uh, new ideas and philosophy and religious thought were constantly changing there. In fact, there were traveling professional orators who would charge a fee for people to attend their talks where they would advise the masses how to become more advanced in their thinking and philosophy and in their social interaction. They were like the TED Talks of the first century. And the church then much like today, was beginning to allow itself to be guided by the ever-changing culture around them. And so in chapter 16, verse 13, Paul says to them, Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong. In other words, quit acting like little kids caving to the pressure from the culture around you and instead stand firm on the unchanging foundation of your faith. And this uh, wasn't just a first century problem for the church any more than it is strictly a 21st century problem for the church. As we see evidence of the very same issues amongst the followers of God during the great empires that ruled the civilized world in Daniel's lifetime. It's actually a reoccurring theme throughout Scripture among the people of God. And so there is an imperative that we answer this question now and get it settled within ourselves while we're still able to choose without serious repercussion or reprisal by our culture or our government. Because according to God's Word, the church has throughout history and will continue to be in the future forced to make that decision at times under great duress and persecution. I'm telling you, that is not the moment when you want to have to work out your true convictions. We don't want to wait to work out what we believe to be absolutely true once the full brunt of cultural disapproval or government censure is bearing down on us. We really should settle this question in the here and now. What is guiding us today? What or who do you look to for answers, for direction and guidance in life and how to move forward? And to be completely honest... I'm not sure that there's a bigger question for professing believers to answer today because of this monumental shifting on major issues that used to live in the spiritual divide between believers and unbelievers, but is now actually creating a divide within the church itself. Fortunately for us, this dilemma for the church is not without precedent as we'll see in our study today, which means that we can learn from those who've gone before us and hopefully avoid the same mistake. So 
We're going to continue working our way through the book of Daniel this morning, picking up where we left off at chapter 11, which paints a pretty clear picture of the difference between those whose lives are guided by the truth and those whose lives are guided by the culture. And just a little background before we read, Daniel 11 is the longest continuous biblical prophecy in scripture. It covers events from the late 6th century BC all the way up to the end of the world and the final victory of God. And so as you would expect, uh, it's a pretty long chapter. And although prophetic for Daniel, uh, the first 35 verses or so, there's a little debate from about 21 to 35, but essentially the first 35 verses are a history lesson for us because they cover events that have already happened. And so we're going to move rather quickly this morning through those first 19 verses or so, all right? And I'll briefly pause to explain the events that were prophesied as we go, but then we'll slow down a bit once we get to about the next 13 verses because from about verse 21 on, the narrative is not only historical, but like so much of the visions and prophecies of Daniel, it, they prefigure future events for us, okay? And so we'll stop at verse 32 today and wrap it up there, and then we'll actually tie in the remaining 13 verses, I think, of chapter 11, along with chapter 12, which we'll go through next Sunday as our final installment in this sermon series, all right? But it's important, it's very important that we take the time to go through uh, each of these verses of history this morning because they prove a very significant point concerning the basis for the truth that we choose to live by today. Okay, so let's read it together, Daniel 11, starting uh, with the first verse. It says, And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So this is the angel, you'll remember from chapter 10, probably Gabriel, explaining that in the first year of Darius, which was 539 BC, that he helped sustain Darius during his rule. And, and the reason that is significant is because that was the year that the decree went out, allowing the Jews to begin returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple. And so God employs an angel to make sure that the king would have uh, the strength to uphold uh, this decree, which was opposed by many. The point being that God is always working on our behalf to see his will fulfilled in us, even when that means working in the lives of the most unlikely people and through the most unlikely circumstances to ensure that we have what we need to carry out his calling in our lives. And that's exactly what he was doing for his people here as they returned to Jerusalem. Okay, let's keep reading verses 2 through 4. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. When he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall rise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And so the angel explains that there will be three more kings in Persia, and there were. Uh, Cambyses from 530 to 522 BC, Smerdis in 522, and Darius I from 522 to 486 BC. And then he says there will be a fourth far richer than all of them, which was Xerxes I, who ruled from 486 to 465 BC. And all of this has been confirmed, right? And then there are several other 
lesser Persian kings who are passed over without mention as the prophecy then moves on to Alexander the Great who ruled from 336 to 323 BC, all right? And Alexander brought down the Persian Empire, ruled over a vast realm, but he died suddenly in 323 BC, at which point his empire was divided between four of his generals. And you'll remember this from a few chapters ago. Cassander, who, whose territory included Greece and its region. Lysimachus, whose territory included Asia Minor. Seleucus, whose territory included Syria and Israel's land. And Ptolemy, whose territory included Egypt, Okay. Uh, now we'll continue where the focus begins to shift from the kings of the south, which refers to Egypt and the Ptolemaic rulers in that region, and the kings of the north, which refers to Syria and the Seleucid Empire. And, and although we're just going to hit the highlights here very quickly, it's important to understand that these predictions in this chapter, save those at the end of days yet to come, have been fulfilled uh, in striking detail. It's actually mind-boggling, okay? Verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So the king of the south is Ptolemy I, and the stronger prince from the north who took over Babylon and some other areas was Seleucus I. Okay, verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. So <clears throat> overall, there was constant conflict between the Ptolemaic and Egyptian kingdoms, or the, excuse me, the Ptolemaic, which was the Egyptian kingdom, and the Seleucids, or the Syrian kingdom. So they were constantly fighting. And so sometime around 250 BC, Ptolemy II, who's the king of the south, attempts to make peace with Antiochus II, the king of the north, by sending his daughter Berenice to marry him. And so Antiochus concocts a plan to divorce his first wife, uh, Laodice, and disinherit her son so that he could marry Berenice and have a child who would then rule over the Seleucid kingdom. Nice guy. But Laodice, his first wife, caught on to her husband's plan, so she had him and Berenice poisoned, thus fulfilling the prophecy that she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. He, he messed with the wrong woman, all right? Verses 7 through 9. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and, and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And then the latter shall come in, into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. So Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, succeeded Ptolemy II, which is why he's referred to as the branch from the roots described in verse 7. And he defeats Seleucus II and returns to Egypt with his spoil. And then after some years of peace between them, Seleucus was hopeful to retake at least some part of his kingdom from Ptolemy, but he was not successful. Let's keep reading verses 10 through 13. 
It says, His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. And the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So Antiochus uh, III recaptures territory in Phoenicia from Ptolemy IV, and then Ptolemy IV defeats Antiochus' forces at the Battle of Raphia in 217 BC. And we know from uh, the Greek historian Polybius that Antiochus lost nearly 10,000 footmen and another 4,000 were captured uh, in that fight alone. And so Antiochus launches a second invasion of the coastal region of Syria following the death of Ptolemy IV. All right, verses 14 through 19. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even best, his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him do as he, shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall uh, turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. And then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found." Okay, so in verse 14, when it says that many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. It's referring to the fact that there were some pro-Seleucid Jews who joined forces with Antiochus III to fight against Egypt, and his forces defeated the forces of Ptolemy V at the Battle of Panium near uh, Panius, it's a New Testament Caesarea Philippi. And, and they also captured the city of Sidon. And then following that battle, in 198 BC, Antiochus III controlled Phoenicia and Palestine. And so he then decides to send his daughter, Cleopatra I, to marry Ptolemy V. This is complicated, isn't it? And then in 197 BC is part of a, a peace treaty with Egypt. He then attacks Asia Minor and Greece, but Rome intervenes and defeats his forces at Thermopylae and later at Magnesia, forcing Antiochus III to abandon uh, those conquests. And then verse 19 says, Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Which refers to Antiochus III being killed by an angry mob one year after the treaty with Rome as he was trying to pillage the temple of Zeus in Elimaeus in order to pay this heavy tribute that he owed to Rome. Okay, Verses 20 through 28. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of the tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person uh, whom royal majesty has not been given. Excuse me. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, 
even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest part of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise a plan against strongholds, but only for a time, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. The king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the, appointed, at the time appointed. And then he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. So uh, Seleucus IV which is Antiochus III's son, succeeds him, and he sends Helodorus, his finance minister, to Jerusalem to seize the temple treasury in order to pay Rome the annual tribute of a thousand talents. And then later he poisons Seleucus IV, his own boss. So through murder and bribery, Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, also known as the Little Horn, you'll remember from chapter 8, who prefigures the Antichrist, he finally rises to power. And as we've discussed uh, in previous chapters, it is then useful to look at his life not only in the historical context, but in a prophetic context as well. So he goes on to defeat the forces, Antiochus Epiphanes goes on to defeat the forces of Helodorus and the army of Ptolemy VI. He deposes the, the uh, Jewish high priest, Ananias, but he wasn't the true heir to the throne. So he uses his wealth to buy favor and secure loyalty of both from individuals and groups of people. He plunders Egypt in 169 BC and on his way home, he stops in Palestine and loots the temple in Jerusalem and he kills 80 to 100,000 men, women, and children in the process. This is what ultimately led to the Maccabean Revolt, where the Jews retook Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. Okay, and, and just in case, all of this isn't enough to make the point of just how significant this particular horrifically evil person is in Scripture and in history, in end-time events, and in our future, it's worth mentioning that verses 2 through 20 that we just read cover events spanning from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C., basically from Cyrus to Antioch, uh, Antiochus the Great, which is 355 years covered in 19 verses. And then verses 21 to 35, the angel describes the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, 12 years in 15 verses. In other words, 12 years of Antiochus Epiphanes gets essentially equal space in Scripture as the 350 plus years before him. It is a very significant statement about the intensity and wickedness of this individual and his reign. And so we're going to dig into this next portion of our text about Antiochus and his dealings with God's people a little deeper. But just before we do, I want to point out one of the most notable lessons to be learned from these first 30 to 35 verses, which have all come true with astonishing accuracy, uh, which, by the way, are described in vivid detail in the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, particularly 1 Maccabees chapters 1 and 2 and um, 2 Maccabees chapter 6 and 7. When you compare 
those historical accounts of these events against the prophecy given to Daniel here in chapter 11, uh, it's nothing short of astounding. It is just astounding. And it's actually historical proof that God's word is truth. Okay? If God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. There are about 135 prophetic statements in these first 35 verses alone that have all now been fulfilled with stunning accuracy. We just skimmed really quickly across the highlights. These are painfully detailed prophecies of historically verified events. So much so that liberal scholars and secular scholars cannot accept that Daniel was actually written when it claims to have been written. They say there, there must have been someone at a later date after these events took place who was an imposter claiming to be Daniel who actually wrote this book because they are utterly unable to dispute its historical accuracy. Okay, you understand, even people who don't believe the Bible is the Word of God cannot dispute the historical accuracy of this book. And yet Jesus himself affirmed the prophecy of Daniel in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. So if you're going to invalidate the prophecy of Daniel in your own mind, then you might as well invalidate the words of Jesus himself because he believed that Daniel's prophecy was authentic. You see, God's word is truth. And it has been proven time and again throughout history in well-documented, world-changing events that have caused entire nations to rise and fall. And likewise, the truth of his word has been proven time and again throughout history in countless quiet moments in our own lives. When his word is confirmed in our own circumstances and in our own hearts. Those are events that can only be verified by personal testimonies to the goodness and truth of his word, which happens to be absolutely filled with good promises for those who love him. Okay, God's word is truth, and it should be the wellspring that we go to every single day to be refreshed and reinvigorated and guided for whatever lies ahead. All right? Now, verses 29 through 32, which we'll read next, go into Antiochus' dealings with God's people in detail. And so we're going to spend a little more time on these verses because they offer much insight and instruction for us today as far as the influences that we allow in our lives and how those influences can become not only guiding factors, either for the good or for the bad, but how they can ultimately become the source for what we perceive to be truth. And that is profoundly important for us to understand because, again, whatever it is that we perceive to be the actual source of truth in our lives, that is ultimately what we will allow to guide us through this life. You follow me? Whatever it is that we perceive to be the actual source of truth in our lives is ultimately what we're going to allow to guide us through this life, all right? Keep that in mind as we go. Let's finish our text for today, verses 29 through 32. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. 
For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. So Antiochus invades Egypt again, but this time he's met with a humiliating defeat. The Romans had joined forces with the Ptolemies and the ships of Kittim, uh, which is actually the ancient name for uh, Cyprus, but later became known for the lands around the Mediterranean, specifically for the Roman lands. In this case, and so greatly humiliated, Antiochus defeated turns his rage uh, back toward Palestine. And he wreaks havoc on God's people. He defiles the altar in the temple by setting up an idol there devoted to Zeus. And he offers sacrifices of pigs on the altar, which is the abomination that makes desolate in this case, in verse 31. And then he turns all of his energy toward changing the culture among God's people away from God's truth by first perverting every sacred institution and sacrament created by God for them, and then not only offering a a twisted version of those institutions back to the Jews, but he also punishes those who refuse to follow those twisted versions of the truth. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis says that Antiochus did everything that he could to emasculate the vitals of biblical faith, determined to see every Jew turn away from the truth of their God. He took away their sacrament, by issuing the death penalty for anyone who circumcised male infants. He took away their sacrifices unless they were offerings to Zeus. He took away the Sabbath by issuing the death penalty for anyone who observed it. And he took away their scripture by issuing the death penalty for anyone caught with a Torah scroll. And in the place of these sacred institutions and sacraments and the word of God itself, he offered counterfeit versions of God's truth. Now there's a strong parallel here with our culture today because although the the punishment isn't as extreme, at least not in this country, the symptoms of spiritual sickness within our culture are very much the same. Our society, often even at the highest levels of leadership, now not only offers us alternatives, twisted versions of God's sacred institutions and sacraments and His Holy Word itself, but those who stand for God's truth are often labeled today as intolerant or bigoted or blind to the truth. You see, God's eternal, immutable, unchanging truth is being replaced with a counterfeit version of the truth that finds its origins not in an unchanging God, but in a constantly changing culture that is manipulated, of course, by the enemy of our very souls. And yet our society is panting after the very one who seeks to destroy us. And interestingly enough, that is exactly what was happening with many of God's people in Jerusalem during the reign of Antiochus. Verse 32 says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. In other words, those who oppose God's truth are esteemed, while those who stand for God's truth are labeled and persecuted. Now what does that remind you of? Just as Antiochus made a mockery of the sacredness of God's truth, our culture today mocks God and rejects His Word to the point that those who stand in direct opposition to it and instead adhere to the twisted versions of God's Word and His sacred institutions are heralded as heroes. They're given awards for courage and peace 
and progressive thought while professing Christians who stand firm on the unchanging word of God are mocked and labeled at the same time and in some cases punished by the laws of our land, written off as intolerant simpletons. Now listen, that may be true, but it should neither surprise us nor cause, uh, be cause for alarm if we're truly committed followers of Jesus Christ. Because first of all, just as the angel Gabriel explained to Daniel that this was in our future, which Jesus later affirms by his own words, and then it's revealed by him to John in his revelation in chapter 13 of that book, we have been well informed. We have been well informed by God's word just exactly what we should expect. So we shouldn't be surprised when the world does exactly what God's word says that the world is going to do. Right? In fact, we should not only not be surprised, but we should count on it because God's word is truth. And his word repeatedly tells us to expect what we're experiencing right now in our culture. So no surprises here. What about the no worrying part? How do we prepare for what we're experiencing now in the almost assured increase in anti-Christian sentiment in the future of our society or worse? Well, the answer lies in the second half of verse 32. So let's read that entire verse again. It says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Okay, it doesn't say we will worry about what to do next. It doesn't say that we will hide ourselves away from society and hope for the best. It doesn't say that we will become quiet and try not to make waves. No, it says that we will stand firm and take action. Now look, the phrase stand firm there in the Hebrew, the original language is the word kazak. It literally means to be strong and courageous. And the phrase take action is the Hebrew word asa, which means to act with effect. So you have those people who claim to be God's people who are seduced by the one who has twisted and perverted the truth of God, the one with the greatest influence over their secular culture. And on the other side, you have those who know their God, and it says they are strong and courageous, and they act with effect. In other words, those who know their God are the ones who actually make a difference in the world. Now, that's an entire sermon for another day. In fact, we're going to, to start right here on this same verse next week because it ties in with the final chapter of Daniel, which we're going through next Sunday. And we're going to talk more about this stand firm and take action. So we won't go down that rabbit trail right now. But what I want to focus on is who it is exactly that the angel describes will be the ones to stand firm and take action. He says it's the people who know their God. And the word know in that verse is the Hebrew word yada, which means to know something or uh, someone or something in the sense that you've actually seen them. It literally means to experience them. So to be clear, Gabriel isn't describing people who simply know about God. He's talking about people who actually experience God. It's a much deeper sense of knowing than simply reading about someone in a book. Right, I can read a biography and learn a lot about a person. I can know a lot about that person, but that does not mean that I actually know them. Right? Likewise, we can read the Bible every day. We can go to church services. We can go to Bible studies for years and know a lot about God. But that does not mean that we actually know Him. 
And so Gabriel says, it's the people who yada, who experience God, who have a relationship with him, who will stand firm and take action, who will be strong and courageous and act with effect. Not simply the religious people who know a lot about God. And so this idea of being guided by the truth certainly involves knowing God's word as we've discussed, but it goes much deeper than that because we must actually know the author as well. We must experience him. The reason that God's worth is truth is because God is truth. In fact, John 14, 6 says, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. God is truth which then, of course, means that to know the truth, you must know God. Society, our culture, will never be the source of truth. The truth can be uh, proclaimed in culture, certainly, but it is only found in God. And yet our culture today is increasingly pushing twisted versions of the truth for us to believe in. And unfortunately, many in the church are choosing to allow their convictions to be shaped by that culture instead of the truth of God and His unchanging Word. There are increasingly today more professing Christians and church leaders who take their direction from their and their theology, at least in part, from whatever popular notions our culture is championing at any given time. And if, if those popular notions happen to be in contradiction with the Word of God... They simply write off those passages of Scripture as irrelevant for our world today. That is exactly what our culture is saying about much of the Bible right now. It's irrelevant. And, and people are buying into it. People in the church. Even the parts that deal with universal moral law that transcends time and culture and covenant. We talked about some examples of that in the introduction to this message. The word relevant today is being used as a club to beat back anyone who disagrees with the most progressive leanings of pop culture, no matter how far those ideas stray from God's intended design for his people. But what truly takes me by surprise is that we're seeing so many in the church and its leaders co-opt the culture's misuse of these words and ideas like being relevant to justify every convoluted, incoherent, misguided, watered-down, powerless expression of the gospel into a completely non-offensive, non-convicting, spineless message that couldn't possibly transform anyone's life, let alone save them from an eternity without God. And I hear defenders of this new non-offensive gospel justified by explaining that, well, the gospel's supposed to be good news. Well, that's true if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Sure, the gospel is good news. It's good news to those who live by it. But look, to those who reject it, it is offensive. In fact, it's supposed to be offensive. It's supposed to bring conviction to the hearts of those who are lost. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then Paul and Peter, quoting Old Testament Scripture, they both point out in the New Testament that the message of Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So why are so many today unwilling to teach the gospel unmolested by the progressive philosophies of a godless culture? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of fear. We fear the disapproval of man more than we fear the disapproval of God. 
And so instead of embracing the truth that makes many around of us uncomfortable, we try to fashion a new truth so as to avoid offense and discomfort because we're afraid of being rejected by our own culture. If the world rejects us, which by the way, Jesus promised us that it would, then how will we make it? How can we be successful? What happens when people or even the government really comes against us? How will we get by in a society that decides to wholesale reject us and our message if we refuse to compromise that message? Well, look, here's something you may or may not know. Our provision doesn't come from what we can save or stockpile. It comes from knowing the truth. Our security and protection doesn't come from how well we can build walls around us. It comes from knowing the truth. Our health, our confidence, our joy, our peace, our freedom, those things do not come from anything that we could ever do for ourselves. Those things come and only come from knowing the truth. It's why Gabriel said to Daniel that those who know their God will stand firm and take action because knowing the truth is the key to living a life that is truly free from all fear and all anxiety and all worry and all doubt. In fact, we should be more focused on knowing the truth than we are in even providing for our own daily needs. And some will take offense at that and even reject that notion. But listen, I'm not suggesting or even advocating that anyone, you know, quit their job and sit home on the couch and just meditate on Jesus. Because the fact is, knowing the truth will motivate you to get up each morning and go to work with a glad heart and do the things that you need to do to receive that provision. The point is that uh, not that we don't uh, fulfill our daily responsibilities or necessities. The point is that we should never be focused on those daily responsibilities or necessities nearly as much as we are on knowing the truth. That is number one priority in our lives, which happens to be found, that truth, in only one person. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more little bit of truth about him and actually about you that I want to share with you today as I close. He loves you. In fact, he loves you so intensely that he was willing to take the brunt of all of the rejection, all of the hatred in this world, every vile and filthy thing that we've ever done or are ever going to do, he was willing to take all of that on his own shoulders until it killed him so that we could live in pure truth, free from everything in this world that is a twisted version of the truth. And that truth and freedom floods our lives when we choose to follow him. And so I ask you again today, what is it that you allow to guide your life? Is it the truth of God's word and a relationship with him? Or is it whatever happens to be the latest fancy in our culture? Because at the end of the day, knowing the truth, knowing, knowing what is really true, means knowing God himself. And so if the honest answer to that question is that you've allowed your life to be guided by the world rather than by him, well, then I'm going to ask you one more time, one more question this morning.
Would you like to know the truth? Let's pray.